What is evangelism? Is the question for tonight. And the passage we're going to be looking at is the 2 Corinthians 4 passage in particular. Well, firstly, evangelism, uh, A and B, is about uh, proclaiming and living consistently. Let's just look at this word evangelism first. It comes, as I suggested to you yesterday, out of the word angel, which means messenger. Angels don't necessarily have wings. Uh, you can entertain angels unawares. I think if I saw an angel coming in with wings, I'd, I'd be aware. You know, I mean, I just kidding. But uh, Moses, uh, but Abraham entertained angels. You don't. Angels are messengers. That's what they are. Messengers, and. But that's the meaning of the word. Now, a gospel is an Eve angel. And the little E-V or E-U in Greek means good, means well. It's the, it's the message that's good, that's great, that's important, you see. And so that's what the word gospel means. It's evangel. And preaching the evangel is evangelism. And you can still see the word angels in the middle of the word, isn't it? It's still the same thing. And believing in the gospel is to be an evangelical the, the world gets those two words confused all the time between the evangelical and the evangel not surprising because evangelicals do preach the gospel so most evangelicals are evangelists as well in fact the word evangelist means a preacher of the gospel see he's one who preaches the gospel and I mentioned to you yesterday that the word promise is connected as well. Because in Greek, you put another little preposition in front of it, epi, and you get ep-evangel. And so again, you can still see the angel word in the middle of it. Because when the great message comes, it comes with a promise for the future. And so the Greek words all flow in the same group. Now, please do not misunderstand me that this is the way to do linguistic studies in Greek language but there is a connectedness that lies behind those words in their derivation they have come to slightly different meanings en route but fundamentally evangelism is proclaiming it is saying preaching proclaiming declaring uh, there's a whole series of of words that go with the gospel but they went about preaching the gospel. Jesus is introduced to us the first time we meet Jesus in Mark chapter 1. He is preaching the gospel. If you ask people in the street, even if you ask people in the church, what was Jesus? They'd say a saviour, the Lord, a great teacher, a prophet, a healer, a miracle worker. But you'll hardly ever get anybody say an evangelist. Yet that is how Mark introduces him. That's the first picture we have of Jesus in Mark 1, 14, 15. He was a preacher of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And whenever they preach, they caruso, they, they, they herald, they, they, they declare, they proclaim. That is what evangelism is. But because the message that we are proclaiming is the divine powerful word of God, that message changes and transforms people. Look with me across to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. In a very useful little verse that may well be worth marking. I don't say that back in the cathedral because we have cathedral Bibles and I don't want people to mark the cathedral Bibles. <laughs> but your Bible, you go ahead and mark. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 where Paul says, We also thank God constantly for this that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it, it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So here's Paul preaching the gospel in human words, but the human words that he preaches the gospel in, because it's the gospel, is actually the divine words. And because they're the divine words, they are at work in you. It's not just, I hear it, and now I know it. I hear it, and I know it, and it's transforming and changing me. And so it's a powerful word that we declare to people. And last night I showed it to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. That this is the way in which Christ writes his letters. And he brings people to new birth and transforms them from one degree of glory to another. For God who said, let there be light, is the God who shines the light of the gospel 
into the hearts of people. It's the proclamation that changes the world in its proclaiming. That is the gospel, that is what evangelism is. Now, I say this because people have all kinds of other things they want to bring into the baggage called evangelism. And so they, they, they want to do all manner of other activities as evangelistic. But they are not. They may help evangelism, they may hinder evangelism. They may be good and right things to do in and of themselves, but they're not evangelism. I love music. I love the music we've had here this, uh, this, this last 24 hours or so. It's been great. It's been great to hear you singing. But while we hear the apostles were singing in prison in Philippi, and while Paul can encourage Christians to sing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, you never hear of Paul and the apostles going around with their music group. <laughs> they don't sing the gospel. They speak the gospel. Now, because music is one of the idols of the current uh, century, uh, some of you can now feel reaction. Oh, he's anti-music. I am not anti-music. I love it. It's wonderful. It's just not the gospel. I also love rugby union. It's not the gospel. <laughs> to say that it's not the gospel is not to say rugby union is a dreadful thing. It's just to acknowledge that New Zealand always beats us and we shouldn't be watching it. Uh, but it, it's, it's just not the gospel. There's lots of things like that. So people are wanting to say, well, changing the world, doing social action, being involved in political processes, helping the poor, all good things. I've got no problem with any of them. They're just not evangelism. They're not preaching the gospel. They can be the consequence of gospel, they can be the outworking of the gospel, but they are not preaching the gospel. That's, it's a different activity. And you mustn't try and kind of elevate the activities you believe into by putting it in the category called evangelism so as to kind of justify it so as to make it more worthwhile like evangelism evangelism it's preaching the gospel but to this end because of the gospel is what the gospel says it requires us to live consistently with the message that we preach now the message is the message whether we live consistently or not let me show it to you from Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, verse 15, where he says, Some indeed preached Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. He's put here in jail, that is, for the defence of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He's not encouraging us to do it out of hypocrisy and rivalry and insincerity. <laughs> He's against people doing it for that reason. But just because you've got bad motives doesn't mean it's not the gospel. The gospel is the gospel, irrespective of the motives of the preacher. Evangelism is evangelism. If Jesus Christ is being proclaimed out of the mouth of babes and infants, out of the mouth of donkeys, or out of the mouth of hypocritical, insincere people, it matters not. It doesn't change the fact that it is the gospel. For the gospel is a message. A particular message is the gospel. And that word of God can come in any number of forms and people and motives. But the gospel, being at work in us, transforms us so that we'll be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the very object of our message. And so as we preach, we indeed are changed. And as we preach this message, we indeed should change to live consistently with the message. And that's what in part 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 is about. For Paul says, we do not lose heart, chapter 4 verse 1. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we do lose underhanded methods of preaching it. We are not peddlers of the word of God using any method we can to make a sale. We won't tamper with the word of God. We won't distort the word of God. We will do it the way God wants us to do it, and we won't lose heart. So what is the content of this gospel that he is preaching? What are we proclaim 
Well, it's spelt out in chapter 4 as we came to at the end of last night, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now let's take this phrase by phrase. It's point two, I'm now at 2a. Let's take firstly the phrase, not ourselves. You see, the gospel is not about us. We are not the subject of the gospel. We are not the important parts of the gospel. This is so contrary to the world that in itself it marks it out as different. You see, people live for themselves. That is the basic nature of life. We'll see it tomorrow when we look at chapter 5, verse 15, where it talks about no longer living for ourselves, but for him. Living for yourself is the normality of humanity. But the characteristic of the gospel, Jesus is the Lord, therefore means I am not to live for myself anymore. And as I don't live for myself, my gospel is not about myself. And therefore, as an evangelist in evangelism, a minister of the gospel, it's not my ministry, it's not my church, it's not my gospel that we're involved in. You can't build your own career in Christian ministry because it's not about ourselves. We, we don't have to be filled with, but can I do this? It's not about me. It's, a, it's you know, that, that great line of life. It's not about you, stupid. It just is not about ourselves. And so we've got to take our eyes off ourselves if we're going to understand this ministry. Not worry about ourselves if we're going to be engaged and involved in what... It's not about me. But it is about Jesus Christ as Lord. That's really at the heart of the Gospel. Jesus, that particular man of history, that Jewish man whose name means Saviour, Joshua of course, he was, his name wasn't Jesus, his name was Joshua. Uh, that's the Hebrew of it in the modern English form. Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua. It's a great name, Joshua. Uh, the, Lord is, the Lord is your Saviour. He should name him Joshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's who he was. Born of the family of David into the town of Bethlehem. The man who went and preached the gospel of the coming of the kingdom. He went about doing good, the kind of good that would come when the kingdom of God came upon the people, healing and captives of the death. But he was teaching his disciples all the time his imminent arrest, trial and execution, as well as his resurrection. So while he preached to the world, the kingdom of God is about to come, the new age has arrived, the God's judgment on Israel is about to come, at the same time he kept on saying to his disciples, I'm going to be taken away and killed and crucified. It was a very confusing thing for the disciples to cope with. This double message that Caesar seemed to be teaching all the time. The kingdom is coming and righteousness will reign and I'm going to be executed as an innocent man. For us, we understand how those things hold together. But for them, it was deeply confusing. It was profoundly difficult. And so he was betrayed by wicked men and crucified under the Romans at the behest of the Jews. That's the Jesus the Gospel's about. That man. Not any other man. It's about that Jesus. Who is the Christ. The Christ is not a surname. You don't look him under the telephone directory under J. Christ. It's not a surname, it's a title. It's the long-awaited word Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christos is the Greek word. Christ is the English word. The word Messiah means anointed one. That is because monarchs are anointed. They're not just crowned, but they have oil poured on their heads. Uh, hands up, those of us who remember the coronation of our great and glorious Queen Elizabeth. The, no, I uh, don't think we have too many of us remembering. Well, let me tell you, it, it, was, a, it was a great moment in life. Uh, our months of school were taken up with all the details of the Queen's coronation. Uh, you could go to school and do nothing all day as they showed you pictures and described more and more what was going to happen. And of course then there was the excursion out to the picture theatre show afterwards where we all went and watched it uh, happen again later because there was no direct communication and there wasn't television. 
And so it was, it was marvellous. However, <laughs> in the descriptions of it, uh, there was this, the fact that they were going to pour oil on her head. Now, as a little boy, as I was at that time, let me point out, <laughs> uh, it was 1953, as a little boy, I was fascinated by the idea of sump oil being poured on her head <laughs> and dribbling all down her nice dress and wondered whether you needed it to kind of squeeze the crown on the head or whether... <laughs> As to why they were oiling her head, I couldn't quite fathom. It just seemed a strange thing. But it goes all the way back to, to the prophet Samuel anointing King Saul, anointing David. They didn't put crowns on them. They put oil on. And when it came out that it was just one little drop of oil that you couldn't even see, I was profoundly disappointed. <laughs> I mean, some of the other bits of the coronation were mildly impressive, but the oil bit, it was a dud. But the symbolism is that God's spirit rests upon this person to reign in God's name. And so Israel was always looking for the coming of the anointed one, the Messiah, the, the Greek, the Christ. Jesus comes as not just that man from Bethlehem, but as the Christ, as the long-awaited Messiah, the king of God's kingdom. Jesus comes announcing the king because he is the king of that kingdom. And when he's accused of being the Christ, at first he told his disciples, I am, but don't tell anybody about it because I'm going to be executed. But then towards the end of the gospel, when he's accused of it, he says, I am. And so they execute him as the Christ. And the, hang, the, the name that ran over his head was Jesus, the King of the Jews, written in several languages, because he claimed to be the Christ. And not only was he the Christ, the crucified Christ, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Uh, the word Lord means master, means king, means ruler, but the most common Lord of the ancient world was the, the slave owner. Now, we don't like this. We're against slavery, I'm against slavery, all God's children against slavery. We, 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 evangelical Christians fought the great battle to get rid of slavery in this world. Slavery is a wicked, evil thing. And, and it, but the Bible's full of slavery. And the Bible sees Jesus as the great slave owner. And you'll see why in a moment or two. He is the Lord. But the word Lord also has another overtone to it. In the Old Testament, it's the word that Jews used whenever they saw in their Bible the name of God, Yahweh. They, they, they didn't like using his name lest they blasphemed it. So every time they came to the name Yahweh in the Hebrew, they said the Lord. That way they wouldn't blaspheme the name. Uh, Jewish friends I know in Sydney, whenever they write the word God, they will not write the word God. They write G hyphen D because they don't want to blaspheme the name. And so the Lord became a way of talking of Yahweh. So when Jesus Christ is the Lord, he's the ruler, the king, he's the slave owner, he's Yahweh. And some of the very verses in the Old Testament that talk of Yahweh in the New Testament are quoted of Jesus. That's how we know Jesus is God, because the scripture takes the very name Lord and applies it to him. But how does Jesus come to be Lord? It's by his death and resurrection. For he has risen to the right hand of God, having conquered the evil one and his accusations against his people, having paid for their sins, having turned aside God's righteous anger against their sinfulness and having risen from the dead in victory over all, over the rulers of this world, so that he would become the Lord of Lord and King of Kings. It's by his death and resurrection that he becomes Lord. Come with me to uh, the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. Acts 2, the end of Acts 2, where Peter is just given this great sermon and it rises to its climax about the resurrection in Acts 2. And he says in Acts 2, verse... What's wrong with my Bible here? Nothing wrong with it, just with the page I'm looking at. Acts 2... And where are we going? Verse 34, Acts 2, 34. For David didn't ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, quoting Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, that's Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know that for certain 
that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. By his resurrection, by his pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Jesus is declared to be Lord and Christ. And so the message of the Gospel is that Jesus is the Christ, is the Lord. That's the message of the Gospel. Now let me show it to you in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. Paul, a servant... Sorry, I'll give you time to get there. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the Gospel. That's the Gospel of God. Jesus Christ is Lord. <coughs> but he comes to be Lord by his death and resurrection. He comes to be Lord in accordance with the Old Testament Scriptures. He comes to be Lord because he's descended from David, because it was David's son who was going to be the Messiah, the Christ. So all the bits line up to see that Jesus Christ is the Lord. So the Gospel proclamation is summarised as the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, some people want to preach Jesus as the Saviour, but if he's not the Lord, he cannot save you. For he saves by conquering sin and Satan and death. Some people want to preach Jesus as Lord without saving. But if he doesn't save you from your sins and he is the Lord, then it means your condemnation. Jesus Christ as Lord is a summary of the Gospel. It's not everything that's in the Gospel, but it's a summary. It's the, the pointy end of the Gospel. It's the abstract at the beginning of the article. It's not the totality of the Gospel, and it's not the only summary of the Gospel you could use. There are other ways of summarising the Gospel as well, but they will never be inconsistent with Jesus Christ as Lord. So, come back to 2 Corinthians 4, because that's why I'm using this particular description of the Gospel. So, it's not about ourselves, but it's about Jesus Christ as Lord. But then it is about ourselves. For the next phrase says, for we do preach ourselves, yes, ourselves as slaves. If Jesus is the Lord, we are the slaves. Uh, your translation says servants, doesn't it? Anyone got slaves there? Every translation in this room is wrong. The word slaves. In the Greek, there were two words. There was a word for slave, there was a word for servants. They're quite different words. Doulos, diakonos, completely different words. But we moderns are so anti-slavery, we won't allow the words that Paul used into our English translations. And so we have servants. If you look at your footnote, you might have slaves or bond servants. Slavery covers a whole range of different uh, experiences. Uh, uh, someone who is bankrupt is a slave. Uh, Helen was a slave for some years. I liberated her from slavery. Uh, because when she went through university to, uh, to uh, become a teacher, uh, she was bonded to the Department of New South Wales Department of Education. And as a result of them paying her way through university, because it was days before fee help and all those kinds of OS studies, in order to pay her fees, the New South Wales government took her into slavery. And for the next five years after graduation, they could send her at 24 hours notice to any part of New South Wales to teach in any school, whatever subjects they wanted her to teach. And she was completely at their disposal for five years, unless she paid off the bond, which was a considerable sum of money. But they couldn't send her anywhere uh, other than with her husband if she married. So while she was single, she was parked off to a country town called Parks. But once married, she, they had to bring her back to Sydney because that's where I lived. Uh, this is the age, by the way, the feminists don't exist. Uh, that is, they don't even know it as part of history. 
that the men, they continued in slavery, but the women were liberated from their slavery by getting married. Right? And so all you had to do was take on a husband and you could get rid of the Department of Education. For some women, that was a bit of a toss-up as to which to go for. And once a woman became pregnant, uh, once she was, uh, became a mother, the, the whole thing was cancelled completely. So, you know, you could... But that wasn't the case with men. Once a man became pregnant, well, it just didn't work, you see. It was only... And so, but I, I by marrying her, liberated her from her slavery to the Department of Education. Now, see, we don't think of the word slavery like that. We think of slavery as, you know, whips and, and chains and, and uh, gladiators and that kind of... And that was part of slavery. But there were all kinds of slaves in the ancient world all manner of bond service that you may have and we are the bond servants of the Lord Jesus Christ and if you find it offensive for us to be his slaves recognize the fact that he himself was a slave Philippians chapter 2 says have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave again the translation servant of a slave being born in the likeness of men being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even the death and the cross Jesus enslaved himself for our salvation and if we are saved by him we become the slaves of our Lord Remember Mark chapter 10, verse 44, where Jesus said, Whoever must be, wants to be first amongst you must be slave of all. Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry, I failed. <laughs> uh, it's very hard to get this off. I can't, uh, <coughs> I can't turn it off quick enough. <laughs> Uh, the principal of principal of Moore College when I was there was a man called Broughton Knox, a very great man, but a man of his age who never really knew how to use microphones. <laughs> he nearly killed a famous preacher in England called Dick Lucas because Dick was listening to a uh, tape of Broughton speaking and in the middle of it he blew his nose right into the microphone <laughs> Dick was driving down a motorway at the time he said he changed three lanes <laughs> at the noise that came out it's alright with these ones you can just walk away but one of these ones that are attached to you I beg your pardon I'm sorry I just couldn't get it off quickly enough but I tried unlike Broughton who wouldn't have bothered trying So remember Jesus, you see, he said, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Remember Jesus at the Last Supper, how he took the, the, the towel and washed the disciples' feet. That was the activity of the slave. And that's what he calls upon us to be to each other. For whose slaves are we to be? Back to our verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. We're to be slaves of you, Paul says. That's who Paul was. He was a slave of the Corinthian Christians. For he was now living for their salvation. He was now laying down his life for their salvation. He was following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it finishes up in verse 31 following saying, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offence to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't come to please himself. The Lord Jesus Christ came to please us. The Lord Jesus Christ came to lay down his life for us. Not for himself did he lay down his life, but for us. 
And as that is what Jesus did, so the followers of Jesus must do the same. How can you be like Jesus and unconcerned about the damnation of mankind? How can you be like Jesus and unwilling to lay down your life for the salvation of other people? You're fooling yourself. You're not like Jesus at all if you're unconcerned that your neighbours are going to hell. If you're unwilling to put yourself out for the salvation of another person, you're nothing like Jesus. Because this is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. And I'm not interested in saving sinners. You know, I want to get my golf handicap down. You know, I, I, I want to actually have that overseas trip. I want to become famous for 15 minutes. I want to, you know, whatever it may say that I want, I want, I want. At that point, I am nothing like Jesus. For what Jesus came was for others' salvation. And that's what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians of himself. That we have Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your slaves. That is what we do. You can see it in chapter 4 verse 12 here. Death is at work in us, but life in you. We're being put to death so that you might live. How can you be more like Jesus than that? Being put to death that others might live. It's fundamentally like Jesus, isn't it? You know, WWJD and the little bracelets. I'm sure Jesus would never wear one. <laughs> but what would Jesus do is something that people make up. I'm faced with a situation in life and I think, well, what would Jesus do? And generally, you're not actually interested in what Jesus would do. Generally, you're trying to work out what you want to do, which you'll blame Jesus for. <laughs> and that's what Jesus would do. You see, you don't make up what Jesus would do. You do what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. That's what we've got to be concerned about. Not what, what would Jesus do. What did Jesus do? He came into the world to save sinners. And he calls upon us to do the same. The call to the ministry is the gospel itself. You can't be like Jesus and be unconcerned about the salvation of mankind. Because that is fundamentally what Jesus did. But the reason he was their slaves was for Jesus' sake. See how the verse ends? With ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. Because he is the real Lord, he wants us to serve other people. That's why we're their slaves. That's why we laid out our lives for them. It is to please and satisfy our Lord Jesus Christ, who lived and died for their salvation, that we now, in obedience to him, will live for them, give our lives for them. Which brings me to point three, and which we can go through relatively quickly once you've understood the principle that is laid out for you at chapter 4, verse 5. For what this chapter is about is Paul not losing heart, but being always of good courage. So you see in chapter 4, verse 1, we do not lose heart. Chapter 4, verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Crossing chapter 5, verse 6, so we're always of good courage. Chapter 5, verse 8, yes, we are of good courage. Uh, the, 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 two, the chapter and a half we've read this evening is a chapter about Paul explaining how come he didn't lose heart. How come he was always of good courage? Now, you'd say, well, why wouldn't he be of good courage? And what? Well, because he had a dreadful life, that's why. It was an appalling life. It was really awful. I mean, look there in chapter 4, verse 8. 4, verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. That was his life. It wasn't all fun and games on the missionary trail when you were, when you were with Paul. Go across to chapter 11 and you'll see what his life was like. Uh, chapter 11, say, pick it up, verse... Oh, I don't know, 20 through 22. 
Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they the servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. But with far greater labours, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with runs. Once I was stoned. That's not a drug reference. That's actually people throwing things at you. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger. At, he was in danger all the time. I mean, this is the life of the first century missionary. And you say, well, how come he could keep going? Why didn't he lose heart? Why didn't he? How could he have the courage to face the world with the gospel? Come back to chapter 4 and you see the answer. Why didn't he lose heart? Well, because, verse 7, we have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Clay pot's not worth very much. What's inside it can be worth millions. And so the evangelist must never get in the way of the evangel. Brothers and sisters, when we talk about people being in full-time Christian ministry, we're not looking for the tall, dark, handsome, beautiful, glamorous, glorious, highly intelligent, most desirable, wonderful person. I'm already there. <laughs> that is not what we're looking for. Because that kind of person gets in the way of the message. People want to follow them instead of following Jesus. You say, well, look, I haven't got much going for me. Great, you're just the kind of person we want. <laughs> because when they see you, they're not going to say, oh, I want to be like him. They're going to say, oh, I want to be like what he's talking about, Jesus. See, when they come out from the cathedral and shake my hands at the door, if they say, oh, you're a great preacher, thank you for that wonderful sermon, I know they haven't understood a word I'm saying. Either that or I've really preached very badly, or both. When they come out and say, isn't Jesus fantastic? Then I've preached well. Because <laughs> it's not about me, it's about Jesus Christ as Lord. I'm just a servant. I'm just the mouthpiece. If you're a clay pot, no one's going to say, oh, that's a wonderful pot. <laughs> that's just not what's going to be said. And so Paul doesn't lose heart that he is despised, hated, rejected by all people. That, that's to be expected. In fact, what it shows is the resurrection. It teaches the gospel. See down in chapter 4 verse 13, we have the same spirit of the faith as the psalmist, Psalm 116, who said, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the, Je the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. If you go and read that psalm, which is a certainly good thing to do, it's somewhere in the top 150 of psalms. If you go and read that psalm, you'll see that the psalmist keeps on being knocked around, beaten up, praying to God and rescued. And because he's rescued, he can't shut up about it. Because he's been saved, he just can't keep quiet. He's got to tell everybody, God saved me. God rescued me. Paul said, I've got that same faith. I can't shut up about the fact of how many times God has rescued. He keeps rescuing me because the God that I'm preaching is the God of the resurrection. Because I'm preaching Jesus in the resurrection. Our God saves. Our God rescues. Because our God saves and rescues, I can't shut up about him. He's just so good. He's just so wonderful. He saves. He rescues. He resurrects. He, he lifts you out of the dead. He brings you into eternal life. Indeed, Paul's whole life exemplifies that gospel. That's what he's saying there in that chapter 4, verse 10, always carrying the body of the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. My life is given away, he says, to you and your salvation. I am being put to death over and over again. But that's all right. You're being given life as a result of me being put to death. And so what is taking place here is the gospel. This is it. 
You see, the invitation to Christian ministry is not an invitation to a good career move. It's not an invitation to a comfortable life. That's not what God wants in the ministers of the gospel. He wants people who are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. So committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll live and die as the Lord Jesus Christ lived and died. They'll lay down their lives for other people's salvation. Their life has to match their message. The message is the death and resurrection of the Saviour. And their life follows that example. By so doing, they propagate the gospel so that more and more people believe and increase the thanksgiving. Verse 15, for it's all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And so they've got to live the gospel, for that's what Paul does. He's renewed daily. This lovely paragraph, the last paragraph of chapter 4, if you look there, verse 16, follow. We don't lose heart. Our outer self is wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's what chapter 3 is about. As you turn to the Lord, so you're being renewed, transformed. So our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction that we are suffering, the persecution, the hostility, the, this is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but we look to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Uh, what do you want? What do you value? What do you aspire? What do you look for in life? If it's the things that are seen, they're not worth having. The car, the overseas trip, the, 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 the job, the house, the harbour view, the, the, whatever it is, the boat, the, whatever it is, they're transient. Two happiest days in a man's life is the day he buys his first boat and the day he sells his first boat. The second is slightly happier than the first. We think, oh, my life will be fulfilled if I, and after a year or two of maintenance, I can't get rid of the thing quickly enough. <laughs> you see, everything we possess in this world possesses us. And there is the real problem for it. Paul says, we don't live for the things that you can see. We live for the things that you can't see. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. The change of life of a person. The eternal weight of glory of sharing it with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're living for. And if that is what we're living for, then we are longing for home. And you get this passage in chapter 5, verses 1 through to 10, where he's talking about his death. He's talking about if we're here in the body, we're away from the Lord. If we're away from the body, we're in the presence of the Lord. You can't kill a man successfully and persecute him and stop him from preaching the gospel if he believes in eternal life enough. They, they had Paul in prison in Philipp, in Philipp, when he's writing the letters of the Philipp, Philippians and he says there in chapter 1, I don't know if I'm going to be released or I don't know if I'm going to be executed, but it doesn't matter. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So if they let me go, well I've got lots of good things to do. And if they kill me, I'm with Christ in glory. I don't know which is better, he says. Doesn't matter. You see, how do you persecute a man who doesn't care if you persecute him? Very unsatisfactory for the persecutor. Because he doesn't care. You beat me up? Well, I'm just like Jesus. He was beaten up. You let me go? Yes, Jesus rescued me. You killed me? I'm in glory. Very hard man to persecute was the Apostle Paul. He doesn't lose heart because he believes the gospel. He's full of courage because he knows what is happening to him. It's the very nature of Christian ministry. My friends, if you enter into public Christian ministry, you will be persecuted. That, that is part of the deal. You need to know that up front, that you will be persecuted. You'll be attacked, you'll be vilified, and the more public you become, the greater the attack and the vilification will happen to you. It just is a consistent pattern of life. Since I've been dean at the cathedral, I'm a much more public figure as a Christian than I used to be at the New South Wales University. 
the New South Wales University. I used to get attacked often in Christian press and media and things like that. Once I became the Dean, I get attacked on the ABC and the Sydney Morning Herald at a fairly regular rate of occurrence. In fact, one of my friends rang up the other day and says, Philip, you got off the boil. I said, what do you mean? He said, I haven't seen your name in the paper for some months. <laughs> it never is in the paper in a flattering fashion. It's only ever there negatively. That is just the character of life. Now, that's only in this part of my life, but in every Christian minister's life, there is always pain and suffering. That is the reality that we're inviting you into. But it's the reality the Lord Jesus invites you into. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. That, that's, that's what it's always been about. Because that's what the Lord Jesus was about. Coming into this world to save sinners by dying on their behalf. And so we long for home. And because we long for home, we don't put our heart in the things of this world. Rather, chapter 5, verse 9, whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please him. That's our aim, to please the Lord Jesus Christ in everything, because we know we will all appear, chapter 5, verse 10, before the judgment seat. And there we will receive whatever is due to us for the work we've done in the body. You see, your life now is not a wasted life. It's not like I, I became a Christian then, back in 1959, and now I'm just hanging around doing nothing until the Lord Jesus Christ calls me home. But all these years here in the middle have got no significance or value or worth, but they're just filling in time, waiting for the Lord Jesus to return or to call me home. Not so. These are the years in which God wishes me to serve him in this world, to please the Lord Jesus Christ here and now. For when I appear before the judgment seat of Christ, my life will be seen for what it is. And if my life has been wood, hay, stubble, it'll all be burnt away and I'll be standing there like naked. I've got nothing to show for the 40, 50 years I've been a Christian. And if my life has been lived for the pleasing of the Lord Jesus Christ, then it won't be able to be burnt away. Silver, stone, precious jewels, it will all be there. Paul says to the Thessalonians, what is my joy? What is my crown? It is you. You are my joy. You are my crown. You are my glory. The preaching of the gospel for other people is the salvation that will be seen on into eternity. The work of the Lord continues to eternity. That's a wonderful thing to realise and to understand. That your labour in the Lord is not in vain. And it's not just for this world. It is for eternity. And that kind of labour is different to every other kind of labour. There is nothing wrong with painting this wall. I wish someone would. <laughs> it's not my colour. And I'm not hypersensitive on colour, so those of you who are, I don't know how you listen. I suppose you sit over that side and look this way, do you? And so, well, it's just there. But that wall that you paint will need to be painted again. And again, and again. And one day, someone's going to come and bulldoze that wall. And when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, that wall won't be there. That wall has no eternal significance, nor has the paint that you put on it. But when you taught your Sunday school class that the Lord Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world, when you explained the scriptures to a five-year-old, when you went into the schools and explained to her, when you spoke to an old lady in the hospital, in the convalescent hospital, and read the Bible to her and encouraged her, that labour will continue on into eternity. That will not be wasted. And you will receive, chapter 5, verse 10, for the good that you have done in this world, you will receive that reward for that matters what you've done. That is the work of the Lord. Please do not get me wrong. Nothing wrong with painting the wall. Wish someone would. <laughs> the way you paint the wall can be Christian. That is, honestly. That's a matter. Honesty is a matter of Christianity, isn't it? But even doing it honestly, which is the Christian way of doing it, not doing shoddy work, shabby work, but honestly. Even doing it honestly, still not doing the work of the Lord. That's doing the work of this world. That's being at home in this body. 
where you are, that's where you've got to serve. And that's why we say, leave that work to do the work of the Lord. For it is a completely different kind of work. All Christians are tent makers. Yeah, there's uh, people talk as there's people in full-time Christian ministry, and there's lay people, and then there are tent makers. There are not three categories. There's only two. There's people in full-time. Well, there's actually only one. All Christians, but in terms of ministry, all Christians are tent makers, except those who have been relieved from the obligation of tent making in order to teach the Bible full-time. The most important thing you do as a tent maker is teach a Sunday school class on Sunday morning is to run the youth fellowship on Friday night, is to lead the home Bible study group on a Wednesday. That is the most important thing you're doing in your life. That is the one thing you're doing that lasts for eternity. The tents you're making, they won't last for eternity. They pay to put the food on the table, to put the, the shelter over your head. Very important things to do, very Christian things to do. Honourable, right and noble that you do it. But you're not living your life to make tents. You're living your life to please the Lord. That's a very different thing. And the most important thing you do, well, that's teaching the three-year-olds in Sunday school. That, that's the really important thing that we are engaged in. And if your fellow Christians are saying to you, brother, sister, please stop making tents. We want you to do this full time. We want to pay you to do it. Well then, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you give up having to provide for yourselves at that point? For in the end we're all going to be judged by the labour we do in this world. So what is evangelism? Two points A and B. It's the message to proclaim. It's the message of the declaration that Jesus is the Lord, the King, the Saviour, the Judge. And with that message comes the Kingdom and righteousness and mercy and forgiveness and rebirth and eternal life. That's the message that we have for the world. But that message, if you're going to proclaim it, is a message to live by and die by. The message is the message, whether you proclaim it or a donkey proclaims it, it's still the message. But if you're going to preach it, if it is really the truth, then you should believe it and not only believe it, but live it. And therefore make your aim to please the Lord in everything. Make your aim to live for the things that are unseen, not for the things that are seen. Because the unseen, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, is the reality. That's the gospel you believe. If you believe it, do it.